Deuteronomy class. We're going to get started here. Good morning. I don't know what this is or what it means, but I got to erase it. No, I don't know how to explain this. Well, last week we, we started into this section of Deuteronomy, which is chapters 29 to 30. And you might remember there in chapter 29 there was a lot of tension in that chapter that doesn't get resolved until we get to chapter 30. So last week's lesson was tension and dot, dot, dot. So today we pick up on dot, dot, dot. And who wants to guess the word? Yeah, expect the word like release or something, you know, like the musical tension and release. But we're going to do tension and return because that's what happens in Deuteronomy 30, or is foretold, rather. So how about those Niners? Did y'all watch the Super Bowl? Or you feel like at freedom to let people know at church that you watched the Super Bowl? <laughs> One of my favorite parts of the, the game was the double pass trick touchdown. This is from uh, CBS News. It says that the Niners struck first in the game, taking a 3-0 lead early in the second quarter on a 55-yard field goal from kicker Jake Moody, setting what was briefly the record for the longest field goal in Super Bowl history. They increased their lead to 10-0 thanks to a double pass trick play. With five minutes to play in the second quarter, Niners quarterback Brock Purdy pitched the ball back to wide receiver Juan Jennings, who then threw it across the field to Christian McCaffrey, who sprinted 21 yards for the score. Yeah, you can tell I'm not like a football fan or anything, but when I saw this, I eventually came up with a good illustration that I'm going to use and potentially overuse in today's lesson, but it has to deal with that double pass that happened. So the, a double pass, it's a trick play in American football, according to Wikipedia. So it's a, a double pass is a, a backward pass followed by a second pass thrown downfield. The play starts with the quarterback throwing a backward pass, generally overhand, to an eligible player. That player then throws a forward pass downfield to a third player. So what I'm going to, to build out, because I thought more of y'all like watch the Super Bowl or something, but I guess you didn't. Anyways, it'll still work, this uh, illustration here. The point is that, in the, in the, that I'm going to be making throughout this lesson is what, what happens with the, the Mosaic Covenant is like this sort of double pass play where it, it goes to this one guy, but that one guy wasn't to keep it the entire time. He was never meant to be the, the touchdown maker. Uh, the Mosaic Covenant was always meant to pass forward to the new covenant. You know, it was designed to do that, which doesn't mean that first guy failed because he didn't make a touchdown, but first guy succeeded by failing to make a touchdown because the design was for some other guy to make the touchdown. And in this case, we're comparing that to, you know, the new covenant as opposed to the Mosaic covenant. And I'm going to say this like 30 times in this lesson, I think. I haven't counted, but we'll see. So we had talked about the covenants in Scripture. What do, what do covenants do? Uh, we're talking about covenants. They, they frame 
and forward redemptive history. Uh, I'm just, I'm going to fill up this board really fast here. So they do that, but they also mediate. God's redemptive plan. So you want to pay attention to those words frame and forward and mediate. This is what covenants do. They're, they, they lay out the whole puzzle, you know, the, the, the frame to the puzzle that the whole kingdom picture fits inside, but they're the thing that forwards the whole thing being piece together, and in doing that, they're mediating God's plan happening within space and time. So let's see if we can recall all the biblical covenants in the Bible, starting with the first one, which is there's no covenant with Adam. There's no covenant with Adam. It's the Noahic. We call it the Noahic. I'd prefer to call it the creation covenant, but uh, that makes it confusing with other theology books that are out there. All right? So the first time, one of the ways that the, uh, well, let's do the, no, the N-O-C, because I have to use N-C for new covenant later. So, the, well, one of the ways the book of Genesis works is the first time a particular word is used, it becomes the definitional, definitional starting point for that thing. And the first use of the word covenant, which is uh, with Noah, which has to do with all of creation. It's covenant with all of creation that God's going to bring everything into its intended rest, which if you think about what a covenant does, it mediates God's redemptive plan with Adam in the garden, God didn't need to mediate a redemptive plan. Adam didn't need to be redeemed. He didn't need to establish a covenant with him to form a relationship like that with him. It was already there. But on the other end of that, after the fall with all of creation, there needed to be a covenant like that, and there is. So the next, you know, Bible covenant that we have is made with another guy. Yeah, so we have, it moves forward to, this marker's not working real well. <laughs> Abrahamic covenant, which what we're doing using those names is just, you know, the major character who was, you know, associated with that covenant. It doesn't mean it was made just with him. Uh, as you know, it was made with Abraham. It goes on to Isaac and Jacob and throughout that Israel's family lineage. And I guess to, to keep piecing this together, within the Noahic covenant, the, the key word for that, I would say, is rest. You know, that's God's goal for all of creation. It ends up being the platform covenant. Everything's on this trajectory. It has to end in God's rest ultimately. It's like the railroad tracks. The, you know, the, all of the train carts have to go down. Well, with the Abrahamic covenant, we get, you know, well, what is the, the train made up of? You know, what are the elements of the Abrahamic covenant? And the acronym is LSB, by the way. Who wants to guess those words? The three major components. Land, seed, and blessing. Yeah, they have that all in there. So that's... You know, telling you know, what, what's going to happen. God's going to restore God's people back into God's land under God's blessing and rest forever. So you see, it connects back to this, but he's restoring, you know, the, the Edenic type of relationship, but it's going to be better. So we know that's what he's going to do. Then the next question is like, well, how is he going uh, to do that? Well, the Mosaic Covenant's going to answer that in part uh, this is a, a covenant that very much mediates God's redemptive plan. With the Abrahamic covenant, we see what, what God has promised. Mosaic covenant is telling how God is mediating that moving forward, or you could use the word, you know, administrating. You know, it's an administration 
where God is ruling in a particular way to move things forward somewhere so that this land seed blessing stuff happens. And during the time of the Mosaic Covenant, there's another covenant that was made back in Numbers that we saw. These things are going to destroy all these markers. uh, The priestly covenant, I think the the point of that with Phineas and his zeal is that God would accept a substitute. So when you think about that with the Mosaic Covenant, the purpose of it is to point out Israel's failure that they can't do it, but within it, God, during that time period, God builds in this other covenant that shows I'm going to accept a substitute, a righteousness substitute. So hope is held out for them. And there's another covenant that's made you know, after these later in history. Davidic, Davidic is the next one. This is, and they're not different colors for any other reason than these other markers were kind of failing on me. <laughs> uh, the Davidic covenant is, you know, it's the king covenant. It's, it's one king to rule them all. This is the king who controls all of the covenants. Uh, he's, he's in charge of absolutely everything, the fulfillment of them, and a new administration, which gets laid out in the next covenant that happens in Scripture. Yeah, the new covenant. Now, you know, for your interest, if you look through like Jeremiah 31 to 33, sometimes especially in chapter 33, verses 14 to 26, you'll have all of these biblical covenants laid out. And, and these are the only ones. It, it names every single one of them, and these are it. And that new covenant picks up the administ- being a mediating type of covenant, and it's administrative, but it's the prophet who's greater than Moses. As we talked about with the Mosaic Covenant, it had a built-in planned obsolescence. It was always meant to move you to this other administration, but you you have to have this king who rules all the covenants to move things forward to the new covenant. So the Mosaic, Mosaic Covenant is a planned obsolescence covenant that's designed to move you to the planned permanence covenant of the new covenant. It's a movement from a, a planned failure to a planned fulfillment. You know, it's like the double pass play in the NFL where there's a, the pass to the one guy, but just because he doesn't make a touchdown doesn't mean that, that he fails. It, it was designed to do that. Uh, so he serves his purpose in the game plan which is to pass the ball forward to the second guy whose job is to go to the goal, to make the touchdown. But there's tension while the first guy's holding the football. <laughs> it's like, what is he doing, you know, behind the scrimmage line, and he's doing this like you're supposed to run or something. It's like, no, he's going to throw it. It's a trick pass. Well, I'm not saying that the covenants are a trick pass. You know, the analogy starts breaking down there for sure. But now think back in to chapter... 29, we had talked about the three tensions that there were in that chapter. You know, one of them was vertical to vertical. What was the vertical to vertical tension? Yeah, between divine sovereignty and man's responsibility, there is another tension. Well, we'll spell that, this one out real quick. You remember God told, he told the Israelites, circumcise your heart. And he says, but I haven't given you a heart. There's the tension. God, God designed that failure into it. He was telling them to do something that they couldn't do knowing that they would fail, which is all according to his plan. So there's this tension that you're like, well, how does that get resolved? How do you fix that? Uh, then you have this vertical to horizontal. Well, who remembers that, that tension? Yeah, the individual and corporate, and what, what was the tension there? Yeah, you would have uh, an individual is cursed for not following 
all of the law. If the individual is cursed, the whole nation gets punished. So they recognize, well, this is just exile's inevitable. And if one person fails in the whole community, we all have to go into exile together. So who, who can resolve that? Is there an individual who can bring blessing to all of us rather than curse? I'm kind of hinting at the resolution there a little bit. There is another tension. You know, we call it the horizontal to horizontal. And it very much deals with this Abrahamic covenant. Yeah, there's this nation, the nation of Israel, that's supposed to become a great nation and be a blessing to all other nations. But how, how can they be you know, the conduit of blessing to, to all nations if they're cursed. So you see, there's another tension that has to be resolved. So you have these tensions of the, within the Abrahamic covenant on this last one, the horizontal to horizontal. But as we had mentioned, the Abrahamic covenant, it tells us, you know, what will happen. You know, God's going to restore his people into his land under his blessing and rest, which is going to extend to, you know, all nations, to the end of the earth. But as you're seeing these things pan out with Israel, you, you're like, like <laughs> how's this going to work with these people? So it tells what will happen, but it doesn't explain how. And I think this is where people get confused with the Mosaic Covenant because they, they start to read the Mosaic Covenant as a, as a vertical sort of covenant. They think, well... If they, if they could keep the law, then they could, you know, establish or at least maintain this relationship with the Lord. But they're seeing it as this very vertical sort of thing. When, and they read it as a, a way for Israel to accomplish the Abrahamic covenant. So, it, in a sense, people would see it like, you know, they would have been the saviors of the world. Uh, they see it. You know, based on their righteousness rather than God's righteousness. If they could have just kept the law, then the promised land wouldn't be promised land. It would be earned land. And they would accomplish uh, all of these things in their own righteousness, which the Mosaic Covenant is very clear to explain. You know, when you get into the land, don't say it's because of our righteousness. Remember, it's promised land. It's a gift to you. It's not something that you earned or worked for. But the Mosaic Covenant doesn't establish a vertical relationship with God, and it doesn't, it doesn't uh, fulfill the Abrahamic Covenant necessarily, but it points back to the reality of it, and it moves forward to an administration that, that will bring it about ultimately. So the, uh, the Abrahamic Covenant is a, a promise covenant. It's telling you what God has promised to do concerning land, seed, blessing. And the Mosaic Covenant is a mediating, you know, slash administrative covenant that's moving it forward. But remember, it's a, it's a double pass play. You know, the Mosaic Covenant wasn't in, intended to be the goal. So you could say that the, the Mosaic Covenant, it administrates the Abrahamic Covenant to some degree, but not to its fulfillment. We talked about last week how within the Mosaic Covenant, there's this idea of righteousness, but it's a horizontal concept. It's not the vertical concept that we see within the Abrahamic Covenant. So you think about this within the Mosaic Covenant. If the, the, the nation was to, to judge righteously, and then it was going to have this horizontal element of where the other nations would then look at them and say, surely this is a, a great nation that's wise and understanding, which happens for a short time, kind of under David a little bit and definitely under Solomon, but it's a very temporary sort of thing. But what actually happens, as you keep reading on Deuteronomy 29, is he says, what's actually going to happen is people are going to say, why has Yahweh done thus to this land? Why this great burning anger? You know, this is, so there's this tension. They're not going to show up and say, wow, look you know, how wise and understanding you are, at least not for very long. It's a, it's a short time in history. 
But what it does is it demonstrates the need for this vertical righteousness, for heart circumcision, or other synonyms would be the new birth, or conversion, or regeneration. It points to the need for something else to make the Abrahamic covenant promises come about because the Mosaic administration was never designed to do that in the first place. It was designed to fail. So when you see it fail, it's not a failure. When it fails, it succeeds. It's doing exactly what it was supposed to do. But within the Abrahamic covenant, the righteousness we talked about there, it's a vertical righteousness. It's what God will do. It gives hope of those promises being fulfilled, not based on Israel's performance, but the seed promise in particular. There's a singular male seed of the woman who's ultimately going to fulfill these things as an individual for the whole corporate body. That is, you know, fulfilling the Mosaic administration and being a blessing to all other nations. And Jesus, when he spoke about Abraham to the sons of Israel in John 8, 56, he even said to them, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So you know, Abraham understood that there, there is this particular seed that is going to, to save all of us. And he looked forward to that day. He was looking forward past all of these other covenants out to the new covenant, which he didn't know it as that yet, but there is something there that he was, he didn't know about the, the double pass game plan thing. It was one of those things that he's like, he just knew that, you know, it was going to be a touchdown, but then there's the tension. It's like, why did you pass the ball to that guy and why is he behind the scrimmage line? <laughs> so is the double pass plan a flaw in the law, or is it by design? Yeah, it's, it's by design, and it works flawlessly. There's, there's no problem with the law. There's no problem with the Mosaic law. Uh, it's perfect, and it does exactly what it's designed to do. Uh, the law isn't wrong. The people are wrong. You think about that, maybe you've got a piece of furniture you bought that you had to assemble and you started putting it together before you looked at the instructions and, and like something's wrong here and then you go back and you look at the instructions and the instructions tell you well you're supposed to use parts one two and three together to put it into four not just one to four you know oh but the problem wasn't with the instructions the problem was with you <laughs> the instructions were clear but you didn't follow them correctly. The Mosaic administration was designed to fail. It's a of planned obsolescence. So when Israel fails, it actually fulfills the purpose of the covenant. You know, the law is perfect and the people are the problem. And the law is always going, you know, one way. It's moving in a particular trajectory which you can see it starts with an emphasis on the curse. He says it's going to go from curse to exile to show you the need for one who's going to come and reverse the curse and to blessing and to bring you from exile to a permanent dwelling with him ultimately. It's moving in that trajectory. So we don't see it like you know, the, the Mosaic covenant fires off and then because Israel fills it just tanks into the ground. It's like, no, it's just moving forward. Like everything's moving exactly toward the target perfectly. That nothing is hindered or thwarted. Nothing is messed up whatsoever. Now, there's this tension at this point in Scripture with the, the Mosaic covenant, you know, administering the Abrahamic covenant to some degree and that it's moving things forward to that point of those blessings but not accomplishing them. It, there's this tension of, you know, how can you have this administration that, you know, it shoots everything down as cursed, but it's framing and forwarding Abrahamic promises. 
Now, how, how can this covenant mediate God's redemptive plan if it's just a ministry of death and a ministry of condemnation? It's one of the nerdy Hebrew things I didn't mention from last week is the word oath and the word curse are the exact same Hebrew word. You know, the point being is that they were, they were oathing to the curse. You know, they were saying, uh, we deserve death and know that that's what we're going to get. We deserve to be condemned and that's what we're going to get. Which is why you see Paul in 2 Corinthians 3, that, that's how he talks about this covenant. It's, it's a ministry of death. It's a ministry of condemnation. And so when you look back at it, you say, well, that's what happened. They died and they were condemned. Success. The failure is what is the success of the design of the Mosaic Covenant. So it sets up this tension of failure and fulfillment. But how it gets fulfilled is there's failure at at this point. The, The exile was something that was foretold before the law was ever given. You might remember this back in Deuteronomy chapter 4. It says, Yahweh will scatter you among the peoples, and you will remain few in number among the nations where Yahweh drives you, and there you will serve gods, the work of man's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there, you will seek Yahweh your God. So you hear, this is all, this is what will happen. You will go into exile, but from exile, you're going to seek Yahweh your God. But here's what it doesn't. It doesn't tell you how. It doesn't tell you how that's going to work. It's setting up this tension. It says, and you will find him and you will search for him with all your heart and all your soul. When you are in distress and all these things have come upon you in the last days. This is a Bible cross-reference phrase about what happens in the last days at the very end. Uh, The first use of it is in Genesis 49, by the way, if you want to try to trace them all out. He said, this is what's going to happen in the last days. Speaking to Israel, he says, you will return to Yahweh your God and listen to his voice. So he's telling, here's here's the whole Bible, beginning to, to end. Here's redemptive history, beginning to end. But it leaves this question unanswered of how? How how is that going to happen? Especially when you have the people, they don't have that heart. They're going to go into exile. But something's going to happen where they have that kind of heart and they return to it. And in the last days, you know, the, the nation is restored and redeemed and they all have believing hearts. You see, that's God's plan. And it doesn't say how, it just says, you will. You will do this. But chapter 30 in Deuteronomy begins to explain how chapter 4 works. It starts to answer that question of how. So you start finding that in your copy of God's Word, Deuteronomy chapter 30. Yeah. I just was thinking, okay, this isn't uh, something that we're studying that was all then. This is still presently God still uses that to... Yeah. So I'm talking about, you know, your Jewish friend that, you know, say is they're still stuck back here in Deuteronomy, which uh, what we're going to see if, if I can pull this off in time is that uh, what's happening in, in this chapter, it's it's still operative in a sense. And, the, and we're going to try to get to, to Romans 10 to see how it's still operative. But what it does is it, it still teaches them that they're supposed to go to the new covenant. It still does that. So, but their confusion was, oh, we're supposed to keep these things and find righteousness in it. And it says, well, the Mosaic covenant has always taught you otherwise. <laughs> 
Right. Do you lie? You know, those kinds of things. So we're, it still isn't playing to be like free of cost. You know what I mean? Saying we Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right. I'm probably going to have to start like talking really fast or something to. No, that's okay. It, that was going to have, I had to talk, I have to talk fast anyways because I showed up with way more notes and I couldn't cut anything else out, I didn't think, so. <laughs> but I, I, I love those sort of comments and those times we've got to talk about these things because you're seeing how, you know, relevant it is and perhaps it helps you to minister to a, a Jewish friend who uh, ha- hasn't become a, a completed Jew and you might learn some things here that'll, uh, provide some interesting conversations in the future for you. So, how is it that Israel's, you know, going to get, you know, returned back to Yahweh if they don't have the heart that they need? Uh, The good news is that God's plan doesn't just end with the curse of the Mosaic Covenant, right? It's moving forward to the blessing of the Abrahamic Covenant, which the way forward is the way back, by the way which is kind of part of what's interesting. There's this motif in Scripture about going back to Eden, but it's actually the way you go back to Eden is you go forward to the new Jerusalem. Now, the Pharisees, they, they misunderstood these things here in Scripture. Uh, they, they believed that they could change the exile and curse by becoming a godly people. Uh, they believed that they could bring in the Messiah and kingdom by affecting personal change. You know, either personal change in themselves or within society. They thought, if we follow God's law, we'll be transformed and society will be transformed. The whole political situation will be different. They believed that if they could just move society forward, they would be able to establish God's kingdom. These same sort of concepts we talk about them today under you know more modern terminology like social gospel or christian nationalist reconstructionist transformationalist theonomist they have that same sort of misunderstanding of the law but how is the mosaic covenant going to mediate the fulfillment of the abrahamic covenant is it going to be by their righteousness or by their law keeping you know, how will it happen Deuteronomy 30 verse 1 says, So it will happen when all of these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse. So it will happen when all of these things have happened. It will happen when the blessing and curse comes upon them. But only the curse has been emphasized thus far, but it has a movement toward going toward the blessing. But did Israel receive all of the blessings that we read about in Deuteronomy 29. Well, they, they haven't yet, but Israel, you see throughout history, is blessed despite themselves, never because they earn it, but despite themselves. You see some of the blessings to some degree under King David, under King Solomon, but you also see the looking forward to the king who can actually control all the covenants, the king who can fulfill the Mosaic Covenant, but bring in a new administration that isn't one of death and condemnation, but of life and justification. The Mosaic Covenant has a built-in trajectory to go that in that direction. It goes on in 30, verse 1, it says, of these things, it says, And you cause these things to return to your heart in all the nations where Yahweh your God has banished you. Thus, word return comes from the Hebrew word shuv, which is also a, a word for repentance. It's a repentance word used in Scripture. So when you see that word uh, return, think of the idea of repentance. Uh, this was something that they were, ca- they were to cause to bring something back. And where were they to bring it back? Their heart. So you see there's this idea of repentance from the heart. This is explaining how chapter 4 was going to work. You remember back in 4.30, it says, when you are in distress and all these things have come upon you, in the last days you will return. In the last days you will repent. You'll you'll turn back to Yahweh. You'll listen to his voice. And 
the reality is when they heard these things, it, every, all of this stuff faded from their hearts because they had uncircumcised heart. So why, why do they have to bring it back to their heart? Well, they're told that because it's things that they, they were going to forget for generations and they would need to be remembered, but they would be remembered in exile. 30 verse 2, it says, And you return, that's our shuv, repent word, and you return to Yahweh your God and listen to his voice with all your heart and soul to all that I'm commanding you today, you and your sons. So what, what is the focus of the Mosaic Covenant that we're being reminded of here? The heart. The focus is always on the heart. And it's also looking forward to the new covenant, which is the promise that you know, all would have this heart. So this is how the Mosaic Covenant fulfills the Abrahamic Covenant, by moving forward to the new covenant, which is a covenant that's promise plus administration put together. It's the fulfillment of the promises and the administering of them. And the goal of that covenant is Christ. Christ is the goal ultimately. Moses isn't the goal. Uh, the goal isn't that you would say, well, we're disciples of Moses, but rather that you say, you know, we're, we're disciples of Christ. We've moved forward to, and if you were disciples of Moses, you would become disciples of Christ because that's what he told everybody to do. So the Mosaic Covenant planned obsolescence is meant to move you to the new covenant planned permanence. So God ordains their failure to successfully bring in the new covenant. So you have to read the Mosaic Covenant with this double pass play in mind. And it's written into Israel's constitution to tell them this is how things are going to work for your nation. And this is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to not keep using this constitution. Uh, it has an expiration date on it. Deuteronomy 30, within their constitution, we had talked about how their constitution defines particular theological terms. And what's being defined here is repentance for them. You know, it's built into their constitution constitution, he says, you know, when, when, you got, when you have all lost what is true about God, what you need to do is to force upon your heart what is true and return to God. He said, this is how you should think about repentance. It's forcing truth upon your heart and turning back to God. Repentance isn't just knowing about God, it's turning to Him. It's like, God, I went away from you, but now I'm back, and I'm here, and I'm yours, and you, you own me. Let me think about this for ourselves. May, maybe there's some aspects in your own life in which you've lost what is true about God. Maybe you've lost that first kind of love when you first started following the Lord, and that zeal that you had to make him known to others or to live for him or to, to grow in him or to be in fellowship. You lost that first kind of love, the joy, the peace that you had when you first started following the Lord. But by the Holy Spirit, you can return back. By the grace of God, you, you can repent and turn to God. In fact, that's just going to be your lifestyle. You're going to do that for the rest of your life until glorification. Uh, you'll have to continue to turn away from some things to turn back to God. And you'll have to throw off everything that's hindering you from running the race well. But by the grace of God, you can do that. You can return. You can repent. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 2 again, you listen to those words, return and heart. It says, and you return to Yahweh your God and listen to his voice with all your heart and soul according to all that I am commanding you today, you and your sons. Now you might remember back in chapter 29, he says, you don't have heart, eyes, or ears. But now it's talking about, well, when you have them, that's what <laughs> resolves everything. It's like, well, you know, where do you get that from? Repentance as we see here, is it, it produces fruit that wasn't previously possible. 
Uh, the fruit of being able to see, of being able to hear, of being able to love God with all your heart and actually listen to him and obey him. True repentance produces fruit that wasn't previously possible. But we're moving towards the solution to all of this and that, well, if that's going to happen, God has to fix the heart, the eyes, and the ears. So the thing that's transformational is not the law, it's repentance. Repentance is the thing that is transformational. 30 verse 3 says, Then Yahweh your God will return you from captivity and return his compassion on you. So you hear that? Think about that in repentance. Like, who gives you the gift of repentance? Yeah, who brings about the returning? God does. So you don't say, oh, well, yeah, we'll do it. We'll do everything you said, which they said that they were going to do that, and they didn't, which was to point out that you, you can't. You can't do it. That Yahweh has to turn you. He has to give you this gift of repentance. It says that he'll return you from captivity and return his compassion on you. So you see that, that, don't miss that, that he also returns his compassion on you. He doesn't just say he causes you to return and then he just tolerates you. But he also returns his compassion on you and he says he will gather you again from all the peoples where Yahweh your God has scattered you. So those terms, you want to keep up with those in your Bible. You know, return, gather, scattered, which scattered is your exile word and gathering is your, you know, redemption, returning word. But what happens when you turn back to God? Well, the other thing happens is that he turns to you. Yeah, it's... You know, this sort of concept, you know, God, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. You know, if you, if you resist God, he resists you. But if you, you know, turn to him, he has grace and mercy for you. It's a movement, you know, toward each other. It's the idea of reconciliation. But he returns to you and he reverses the curse. Verse 5 says, And Yahweh your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it, and he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. So what he's doing here, this is conquest theology. We get into that more in Joshua. But he, what he's doing is he's guaranteeing a, a new conquest in the future that's going to be totally successful and permanent. Now, when you hear that word prosper you, it could also be translated go well with you. Now, that kind of language, does it belong to the Mosaic Covenant or the Abrahamic Covenant? Prosper you, go well with you. It's Mosaic. It's Mosaic Covenant language. Is that, you know, honor your father and mother. You know, this is Mosaic stuff. It's, if you do it, it, it'll go well with you and you'll enjoy long life in the land. Very Mosaic. Now, uh, multiply you more than your fathers. That language fits with what covenant? Yeah, that's the Abrahamic. So you're seeing he's pulling these, you know, two covenants together here, showing a, a connection. But what God's communicating is he's going to fulfill all of the covenants. He says, who's going to bring them into the land? He doesn't say, when you bring yourselves into the land. He says, when I bring you into the land, because I promise to do it, and it's a gift that's irrevocable. So it's anticipating this double pass to the the new covenant to resolve these tensions. But how can they return these things to their heart if they don't have the right kind of heart? And here's you know, the high point in Moses' sermon. And finally, and, because people are thinking, we've, oh, we know, we've heard this. You keep saying the same sort of stuff over and over and over, but you never resolve the tension, Moses. What's the deal? And he gets to verse 6 finally. He says, moreover, Yahweh your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your seed to love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. I call this the triple heart bypass surgery verse of the Bible. Because the, the text keeps raising this tension. Well, how can all of this stuff work? I mean, who can resolve? We're supposed to have this heart, but God hasn't given it to us. Well, this verse answers the question. Yahweh your God will circumcise your heart. 
the key mechanism that, that gets them from not having a heart to love God to having a heart that loves God is God and Him alone. But what if somebody believes that Israel was saved during this time in history by keeping the Mosaic law in the Old Testament? They are wrong. And the Mosaic law tells them that they are wrong. Instead, what it teaches them is that God has to save you. God has to change your heart. That's the only solution to this. Uh, the only way you can be transformed is if he transforms you. So why does Moses put you know, this here as a crescendo to his sermon? Well, he's emphasizing that salvation is of the Lord alone. And why does he mention circumcision here? Well, what, what does circumcision do? Well, it carried this idea of being consecrated to God or dedicated to Him, uh, consecrated to being the people of God. But circumcision is a sign of what covenant? Yeah, it was a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. And it shows, what it's showing here is God's going to complete the job. He's gonna, he is going to fulfill his promises. Uh, and it's the perfect conclusion. You know, Moses is giving them the, the perfect conclusion to all these tensions and pointing to it's God and it's salvation by grace alone. There's other mentions of the new covenant. I guess I didn't tell you that. I, you just got the new covenant mentioned to you all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. My, it gets picked up, the building out of the theology gets picked up, Ezekiel 36. Here, uh, Israel is in exile, and God tells them he's going to give them a new heart. He's, he's going to wash it clean. You know, it's tied into, say, using the word circumcision, he's talking about being washed clean to be consecrated to the Lord. And then, you know, it comes after Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel 37, which is that uh, chapter about the dry bones that become a nation again. And I'm going to make a brief comment about Jeremiah 31, and then I'll let you ask your question. Uh, Jeremiah 31 also mentions, you know, a new covenant, a new law, and they'll be able to obey it. So you see that? It's a new administration that resolves the tension where God fulfills promise, promises and he gives a new heart to be able to obey. Andrew. Yeah, so, you know, Paul writing to Timothy, he's saying, you know, the, the law is good. There's no fault in the law because, you know, people misunderstanding it. They think, well, salvation is through the law. But then if, if you're telling those people, well, you can't get righteousness through the law, then they say, well, the law is bad. You know, what's the point of it then? He says, the law is not bad. The law is good because the, the law has fulfilled its purpose in showing you you can't fulfill it. Just not, which, you know, Paul answers that question as he goes on. He's like, you know, who, who is the law for? Well, it was for murderers, liars, the sexually immoral. So it was, it's a ministry of condemnation, and that's why it's good. When it condemns people, it's serving its good purpose. But it's also showing them law-keeping isn't going to save you. God's goal isn't for you to try to do better or to try to be a better law-keeper. It's to point you towards your need of Christ who is that law fulfiller, that he keeps the law in your place, but you need his righteousness. Righteousness isn't something that you produce, but the law is good to show you you need to go to Christ. You need to go to Christ to be your righteousness and the one who gives you a new heart to, to love his law and to, and to have the ability and the want to, to obey it. Does that clarify things for you? Okay. <laughs>
Yeah, this, this is something we had talked about in the past. So where, where some people get confused on God's laws, they think God's law equals the Mosaic law, equals the law of Christ. But instead of what you have, you have you know, the bigger overarching category you know, of God's law right here, but you have two different ways that it was you know, administered. You have Moses and that time how it was administered. And then when Christ comes, he's the administrator of a new covenant. So if when we're using this term God's law, we should never just be thinking about this. We're talking about something that's way bigger than Moses. As uh, Paul even talks about back in Romans, he says, there was a law from Adam to Moses. <laughs> you know, what was that? God was administering things in a way, you know, since creation, which what we're talking about is not a set of rules, but God's instruction. So, you know, even right now, as we're going through this administration that's obsolete, because it, it fits in this category of God's law, which applies to all of creation, it still serves its instructive purpose, even though we're not under this particular administration. So even while we're studying the book of Deuteronomy, we're still learning the purpose, which is you need to, to go to the new covenant. You need to be a, a new creation in the new covenant. So it still has its instructive purpose, but we don't go back and say, well, it's still in effect, and we also have to enforce the, the dietary laws and those particular things. Yeah, that's this. So God's law is the, the transcendent thing. The Mosaic administration was temporary, but it was meant to move to the law of Christ. So like when you read Scripture, well, uh, depending on your Bible translation, you know, within you know, a NASB or LSB, they'll, they'll put a capital L where they think it's referring to the law of Moses. Or that, that's actually a distinct phrase in Scripture, say, law of Moses, but you also have another phrase, which is the law of Christ, which is a different thing. And so you're seeing that you know, God's law is the generic term that covers all of it. You can say, well, Mosaic law is God's law because it's, it's from him. Uh, the law of Christ is God's law because it's from him. But the Mosaic administration is, is different than the law of Christ. But where you see a you know, similarity, I think, of in uh, it's Romans 13, yeah, Paul talks about, well, what's the fulfillment of the law, of God's law? It's love. You know, it goes back to that same principle which you saw in, under the Mosaic administration. It was teaching you that you're to love God with all your heart, but it doesn't accomplish that, which is pointing forward to you can't just stay in this covenant because it doesn't accomplish what you need. You need to go forward to the new covenant where the new heart bringer gives you that new heart to love him but he's not going to keep you here. It was always meant the stuff within the Mosaic administration. We're talking about how it's models. Like the, the tabernacle was a model of dwelling with God, but it was pointing you forward to the, the greater tabernacle, which is Christ. When he shows it, you know, he says, you, you, in your translation, you'll have the word temple or sanctuary. You know, he talks about his body as the temple or the sanctuary or the tabernacle. Saying it, that stuff was to teach you to come to me, but once it's fulfilled, it's, you know, it's like Sunday school lesson purpose. You just come to me. You don't go back to that thing. So any, any other questions on how this stuff relates? I know it takes a while to uh, try to clarify. Yes, sir.
Yeah, things are always clearer in, in Hebrew or Greek, you know. I, I say it's like the, the difference between watching a black and white television or watching something in HD. You watch it in black and white, you're like, I wonder if that dude's sweater is orange. But you know it's a sweater, and you know it's got a color to it. But if you could see it in color, you'd be like, yeah, it's orange, I knew it. <laughs> it it's kind of like that, but they're, they're you know, Within you know the Hebrew language, there is no uppercase and lowercase and stuff like that. And in, in Greek, there is, but you just know it by context. And you don't have to know Hebrew or Greek to to know these things. <laughs> you know. Yeah, e even with like a Greek interlinear, I don't think that you'll necessarily gain anything from that you'll be more helped by just trying to follow the argument in a text you know read through the first eight chapters of romans and, and look at every single use of the word law that uh, paul has you're gonna find he uses the word a ton but he's referring to a bunch of different types of things because he'll talk about the law of sin you know the there's the law of the flesh there's a, the law of Christ, the law of Moses, but sometimes when he just uses the word law, you just have to just read what he's talking about, and it's, you know, pretty apparent, you know, if he's talking about something that's related to the administration of Moses or to Christ. So I'll say just start in chapter one, read to chapter eight, keep everything intact along the way. And, and some, of, some of the verses are definitely hard, to figure out. doesn't mean that they're not clear. It just means it takes a lot more thinking to go, what? Because he'll combine talking about multiple concepts at, at once while using the word law. Corey. Yeah, so I think, you know, if you guys are familiar with Way of the Master, uh, it's a way of the Master, right? There, Jesus evangelized people in different ways, and uh, it's not like you, you have to follow, you know, exactly that, that sort of teaching tool, but it's uh, correct in that it, what it recognizes that, you know, God's law is designed to do is it's to prosecute. It's to show somebody that they're a sinner, it gives them a knowledge of sin, but it's a tutor that's pointing them to Christ. But you're also not just leaving them there well, where you say, well, what you need to do is just start doing these things. And then God will accept you. <laughs> you know? You're not doing that. You're using it to point them to Christ. But you also recognize you're, you're not necessarily just talking about uh, the Ten Commandments. The, the ten words, you know, as we had talked about, they're actually built into the beginning of creation, you know, in those statements, you know, God said. There's exactly ten of those in the beginning of Genesis to show, here, here's God's instruction for all of creation. This is how things work. And, there, and that, that law transcends absolutely all of creation, Adam to Moses, but in Moses it had some specific uh, manifestations, you could say. So it's always true that there's only one God and you should never worship any idols. You should never take the Lord's name in vain by living contrary to that. But what's one of the things that's unique within the Mosaic Covenant is the Sabbath. It, it is given inside of that covenant and it, it rises and falls with it in, in the sense of having the actual holidays of the Sabbaths on the calendar. It was the sign of the Mosaic Covenant itself. So, you know, if you think of it in terms of, you know, you're using the, the Ten Commandments in evangelism, you're probably going to end up kind of correcting some of those things, and you're recognizing you're, you're actually using something that's not specific to the Mosaic Covenant. You're actually talking about this bigger category of God's law. But the fulfillment of the Sabbath, ultimately, is that you should be resting in Christ. Uh, he, he is God's rest, which is the Hebrews 4 sort of concept says that there is a Sabbath, there, there is a rest that remains open, it's God's rest, but the, 
the Sabbath being the sign of the Mosaic Covenant was to teach you that you're not in it. You're not in it and you need to move into it. But the way that you move into it is Christ. So when he comes, you know, you don't have, you know, the Saturday Sabbath or any of the other annual, monthly, yearly Sabbaths in place anymore because they've served their purpose of teaching you to go to him. So now you can just go to him. And there's, uh, there's actually a really good uh, couple of articles that was written by uh, Mike Riccardi on this sort of concept and thinking through the law of God and way of the master evangelism that basically he kind of gives you this chart and explains how you know, God's law is the big transcendent category, but you see it expressed in these two different administrations of Moses and Christ, and how do you make sense of that, you know, if you're somebody you thought, well, I was trained by Ray Comfort to, to say this, and am I, am I talking about this or this, and why am I modifying things that are in this? Well, it's because I'm under this, <laughs> and there's some specifics that, I'm, you know, I'm not asking people, you know, do, do you have mixed fabrics? <laughs> are you wearing mixed fabrics today so that I could you know, and instruct them and in how sinful their hearts really are. <laughs> Which, remember that this, this covenant is with Israel only. Uh, you have never lived a day of your life under the Mosaic Covenant, and, and you never will, because it's obsolete. But that's the other thing that people forget, is that it was made, th that's why I think it'd be better to call it the Israelite Covenant, because it was made with them only. Well, I had this really awesome finale to this uh, <laughs> lesson, but we're, we're going to have to get to that next week. Uh, we could start off next week if you have some more questions, you know, li like this, you know, along these sort of lines to clarify some of these things. Let, let me know before I'm sitting up here. Uh, that'll give me the, the opportunity to be you know, more prepared so I can, you know, find pertinent passages or pick out, you know, what would be the best passage to look at, you know, out of 30 that talk about something. And, uh, you know, I, I would be happy to, to serve you and helping to, you know, clarify these things and so that you would see this is what, you know, God's Word teaches on it. And I get this, this topic in particular is, is difficult, no question, but... It, it's also really clear, which is, uh, you know, something we were going to talk about from uh, later on in this chapter when Moses tells them, you know, this commandment which I'm commanding you today is not too difficult for you. <laughs> and it's not far. You don't have to say, well, if only somebody could go to come down from heaven and tell us, then we could understand all of these things. Or, you know, if we could go on some great heroic sea voyage, we could... Uh, go into some foreign library and uncover these scrolls that would explain all these things. But Moses tells them, you can understand these things. Difficult, they may be difficult, but they're not too difficult. You can understand them. You, and you can understand God's law and how it works with the different administrations and the stuff like that. So let me know your questions and stuff before next Sunday. We'll work uh, toward... Uh, clarifying that, if that's helpful to y'all, and then we'll continue to the great and grand finale that I was hoping to, to get to, but next week, Lord willing. So let's pray. Our gracious Lord, we thank you for your word, for the richness of it, for the clarity of it. We pray that you would bless us with the right understanding of it so that we could worship you as you intended and that we would find the great delight that there is in understanding these things, and that we would honor you as you have revealed yourself, and we thank you that you have given us revelation, something that is revealed and not something that is concealed. These are things that we can know and that we can understand and worship you for, and we thank you for the gift of new hearts, new hearts that repent, that believe, that have your spirit to illuminate the scriptures and to empower obedience to them. We thank you for new life in Christ. 
that you didn't leave us under the ministry of death, but brought us into a ministry of life, from ministry of condemnation to a ministry of justification by the righteousness of Christ and faith in him alone. Pray that you would give us your understanding of these things ultimately, and that you would amaze us with the glories of your redemptive plan. Amen.